Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Social media has played an important role in 21st century activism, from the Arab Spring protests in the Middle East to calls against police violence here in the U.S. Sites like Facebook and Twitter help activists communicate and spread awareness to a global audience. In the two weeks following the murder of George Floyd, the Black Lives Matter hashtag averaged nearly 4 million tweets each day. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. On today's show, we examine organizing and activism in America today, and whether those hashtags can translate to real change. Later, we'll hear about the Connecticut campaign to end solitary confinement and reform prison culture across the state. But first, Alicia Garza has been an activist and organizer for over two decades. Garza was a co-founder of the Black Lives Matter movement, and she's dedicated her career to increasing political engagement. She's now principal of Black Futures Lab and author of The Purpose of Power, How We Come Together When We Fall Apart. Alicia, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you so much for having me. You are well known for your advocacy work around racial justice and police violence. But you say in your memoir that you have been an activist since you were 12 years old. What got you into activism at such a young age to one, be so passionate about an issue, but to say, I'm going to lend my voice to making a change? Well, you know, like most people who get involved in becoming a part of the change they want to see, It's really related to my own personal experiences. I grew up with a mom who got pregnant with me when she was in a relationship, and then the relationship fell apart shortly before she had me. And so that meant that she had to learn how to navigate the world as a single mother, and she was not prepared to do that. And so as a result, she talked to me a lot growing up about sex. And she would say things like sex makes babies and babies are expensive. (laughs) She would talk to me a lot about how difficult it was for her to do this on her own. And she wasn't saying that to me to like make me feel bad or anything like that. I think she was just trying to impart information to me that she felt was important for me to know. And as I got older, When I was in middle school, there was a big controversy in my school district about whether or not to provide contraception, condoms in particular, in school nurses' offices. And this was, of course, at the time when, you know, the conservative movement had really kind of drummed up all this fear and anxiety that teenagers were having sex and getting pregnant and kind of, you know, disrupting the the moral Uh, fabric of society. And so there were big fights happening about abstinence-only education in schools or comprehensive sex health education. This was also during the time of the AIDS crisis, right, where millions of people were being impacted by a sexually transmitted disease that had political barriers to being resolved. And so me growing up with this mom who was always telling me, you know, sex makes babies and babies are expensive. I just didn't understand why if sex made babies and babies were expensive, 
And I was in middle school and people were talking about putting condoms in school nurses offices. It just seemed like a no brainer to me. Like, why wouldn't you help people prevent pregnancy? And so that's how I got involved. And yes, I was young. I was 12 years old and it really spurred my engagement in other kinds of social issues. I will say that we did kind of organize young people at that time to lend our voice to the conversation, which of course was missing. And I think that's also, you know, part of why people get involved in social change is that they feel like their voices aren't being heard, or they feel like their perspectives or their experiences aren't being considered. And for me, unlocking what it meant to win a campaign, to win something that you've been fighting for, it's like, it's addictive, right? And so it started with reproductive justice, and then eventually kind of blossomed into racial justice and economic justice and gender justice fights. And that has been true for me for more than 20 years now. And it sounds like it's a calling for you that when you are able to see the impact that you can have and bringing together the impact you can have with others, how that empowers people across these spaces. You started out in this very hyper-localized space of organizing and advocacy and, you know, saying, don't make decisions about us without us. What was it like to move from that hyper-local space of organizing and movement building to a more international platform of saying people can come together on these different things, economic justice, racial justice, because it's not unique to where we are right now? You know, I'm so glad you asked that because it's actually quite difficult. You know, uh, local organizing and activism, uh, it's not easy work, but it's connected work. There's no place you know better than the place where you're rooted. And when you expand that to national work, it, it requires that you push yourself to understand contexts that are different than your own. And the goal is always to find commonality, but to also understand difference and why it exists and to not make difference a barrier, right? But to look at it as an asset. Internationally, it becomes even more difficult for a few reasons. I mean, obviously here in the United States, we are, I would say, intentionally ignorant about contexts outside of our own. And frankly, it, it takes relationships and time and trust to really understand contexts that are not yours. And then I think there's the additional dynamic, right? That the United States, you know, has been a, a power player globally for a long time. And so even oppressed people in this country exercise relative privilege in relationship to other contexts. And so it's not as simple, right? As oppressed people unite everywhere. It's like, actually, there are so many ways in which those of us who are left out and left behind are also leaving out and leaving other people behind. And so there's a kind of extra added layer of accountability that um, is required and it is not easy work. And then of course, I, I just think, you know, geography makes it difficult as well. I mean, the invention of social media, I think has exposed people to so much more than they've ever been before. And it has allowed people to connect across barriers that were previously at least they seemed insurmountable. But with that, it's harder to build those relationships that are necessary for real deep and true connection that can last over time. You've mentioned how difficult the work is. You've made reference in other spaces of how 
vulnerable it makes you to take on this work because then you become a target for others' ignorance, for others' discomfort with someone coming forth and challenging the status quo, whether it's in a local community or on an international stage. But one of the things that you've done throughout those experiences in activism is to create platforms to think about this and challenge that in a different way. And one of those platforms was the creation of the Black Futures Lab in 2018. And you are now principal for Black Futures Lab. Share with our listeners what led you to create that organization and what's the key mission of Black Futures Lab? You know, I really created the Black Futures Lab and the Black to the Future Action Fund, which is our sister organization, to make Black communities powerful in politics so we could be powerful in the rest of our lives. And it was really created to close a gap that I saw in um, the movement kind of ecosystem. You know, I think that movements here in, in the United States have always been agnostic about electoral power and building and wielding political power as a tool for social change. And there are severe consequences to that that I think we're living in right now. You know, my mom used to say, whatever you leave on the table, you leave for somebody else to eat. And that couldn't be more true than in elections and electoral politics. Rightfully so, so many of us are distasteful of politicians and politics. Uh, We are disappointed by politics as it currently exists. And so our impetus is to say, that's not our space, right? It's too corrupt. Real change can't happen in those spaces. And, you know, when we look forward even to the midterm elections this year, there are a lot of people, Black people in particular, who are saying, you know, well, I keep showing up and nothing's happening. And so I'm just not going to show up anymore. And I always say, you know, I get why you don't want to show up. (laughs) I'm pissed and I'm disappointed just like you. But the question isn't, should I participate or not? The question is, how do we make politics work for us? I am so mad about what's happening in our country right now. I am so mad about the way that things are and are not being distributed. I am so mad about the way that power operates in this country that I spend every waking minute thinking about and working towards changing how politics operates so that it can operate better for us. And that's really what the Black Futures Lab exists to do. You know, our communities are often talked about, we are used as talking points, but our experiences and the solutions that we have um, are not a part of the public discourse. And the consequence to that is that when we are left out, we get public policy that doesn't work for everybody. And when we get public policy that doesn't work for everybody, we get the conditions in our communities that we experience right now, whether it be closing schools like they're doing in my community in Oakland, whether it be, you know, houselessness, whether it be uh, voter suppression, right? All of those things, right, are the result of people being left out of the conversation. For us, we really work to put Black communities at the center of the discourse around what public policy needs to look like in order for all of us to thrive. Uh, And so we do that in a few ways. We collect recent and relevant data about who our communities are, what we care about, what we experience every day, and what we want to see done about it. We design good public policy based on that data. We work closely with influencers, entertainers, and celebrities who are Black, 
to use their platforms for politics and not just products so that we can reach beyond the choir of people who are already involved. And we do tons of work all the time to engage, educate, activate, and motivate Black people to participate in the political process. And that, we think, is our winning combination to how it is that we make politics work for us rather than us just working for politics. I love that you said, how do we emphasize politics and people over products? Because this often is a crowded space, right? An election year comes, certainly everyone has an opinion, but suddenly they become the go-to gatekeepers and experts. And one of the things that the Black Futures Lab has pioneered and is a way of saying, we need to know who we are, where we are, the demographics is the Black Census Project, which is a groundbreaking effort. It is the largest survey of Black Americans since the Reconstruction era. What have you learned from conducting that survey? And I know that you have a new iteration that will be coming out soon. What are you learning through that survey that helps us break through some of that popular discourse and myth-making about Black Americans? It's one of the funnest, most interesting projects I've ever had the opportunity to work on. And, you know, the Black Census really is our way of exposing the complexity and diversity of who Black communities in America are. And, you know, if you were an alien who dropped in from outer space during any kind of election season, you would think that Black people are only urban, <laughs> older, heterosexual, and Christian, right? And that the only things we care about are, you know, criminal system reform. And that's just not true. The thing that was the most impactful for me from the last round of the Black Census was that almost everybody we talked to, 30,800 people, almost everybody we talked to said, you know, nobody has ever asked me what I think or what I experience every day. That is disastrous for democracy, right? Um, and so that's, and just think about the 14 million Black folks in this country that talking to 30,000 people and the majority of those people saying, I've never been asked what I want from politics or what I think about politics or how I experience the impact of politics every day, that should really be a jaw dropper for any legislator, politician, elected official, that there are huge swaths of your constituencies that aren't being engaged. And yet you rely on those constituencies to keep you having a job. The other thing that I thought was really important, and this relates, of course, also to election cycles, you know, every election cycle, we hear these like Democratic Party talking points that are really made for older white suburban voters. And what they are is like, you know, talking points around the economy that say, you know, we need to rebuild the middle class, or, you know, we need to make the economy work for everyone. And it's like, actually, you know, the number one issue that was keeping Black folks up at night was low wages that were not high enough to support a living. The second issue that was important to people was um, the lack of quality and affordable housing. And then, of course, the third issue was the lack of quality and affordable health care. So if you take all of those things combined, that 30,800 Black folks, the majority of them said, I've never been asked what I want, what I need, what I experience every day, and that my number one issue is wages that are too low to support a family. And then you compare that to the talking points that are being used ostensibly to get people to go to the polls. 
and to inform, right, the agenda that is being moved in in city halls and state legislatures and in Congress, and you put those things together, you see a big mismatch, right? It's not about being a part of the middle class. It's like people cannot support their families. (laughs) Um, It's not about, right, these broad strokes of like making the economy work for everyone. Black communities are experiencing a number of assaults, and one of them is racism. Um, And there's not, the economy is not an equal playing field. And too often we are pushing forward public policy that is race neutral, as opposed to what we say and advocate for, which is race forward. We need policies that address systemic discrimination and the barriers that communities that are being left out and left behind are facing to even access, right, some of these platforms like the economy, like our democracy. And we need to actually build that into our public policy. And so what I think we did with the Black Census is exposed where those gaps can be bridged. We took that data and we turned it into what we called the Black Agenda 2020. And it is a suite of policy ideas for how it is that we address the gaps between what Black communities are receiving and experiencing and what public policy is doing. And we used that Black agenda to activate voters in the 2020 election cycle. And I can tell you, it was the number one thing that got people to turn out to vote. It wasn't the candidates. Um, It wasn't that people were like, I really love Joe Biden. It was that people were like, I really want somebody who is going to look at how to raise wages in particular, how to address the housing crisis, how to address the crisis in healthcare. Um, And so I I think as we enter into 2022 and we launch a new round of the Black Census Project, that we're going to see some really interesting data that can both tell us what are the differences and similarities in conditions that Black folks are facing, what are the shifts in the most important issues that Black folks want to see addressed, and also some of the shifts in solutions. I think when you looked at, for example, criminal system reform, In our 2018 census, we heard people talking about things like body cameras, right? This time around, we think that people will be talking about different ways to address criminal system reform, including, you know, removing white supremacists from police departments and law enforcement. Um, And that is an advance, right? It's something that has shifted in the political landscape that I think, again, highlights the need to address racism at the same time that we are addressing other gaps in the systems that organize our lives. That was Alicia Garza, activist and author of The Purpose of Power, How We Come Together When We Fall Apart. When we return, Alicia talks about the limits of social media activism. And later we'll hear from a Connecticut organizer who's working to end solitary confinement in state prisons. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Coming up, how a new bill at the Capitol could end solitary confinement in Connecticut. But now we return to our conversation with activist Alicia Garza. She's founder and principal of the Black Futures Lab. In 2020, Garza published The Purpose of Power, How We Come Together When We Fall Apart. She describes the book as being not just a memoir, but a manual for people creating change in their community. In one passage, she reflects on the influence of social media on activism, and she writes, hashtags do not start movements. People do. I asked Alicia to explain why that distinction 
is important. You know, it's really interesting. For the last decade since Black Lives Matter emerged onto the scene, people have been very obsessed with hashtag activism. And the thing that was like the number one hook for anybody who was just learning about Black Lives Matter was like, well, how did you change this hashtag into an international movement? And how did you start a movement from a hashtag? And I'm like, yo, okay. (laughs) I always have to pause and say, well, before we even start talking about that, you need to know that ever since Black people were brought here, There has been a movement for freedom, for justice, for self-determination. And that movement was many generations before I was even a a sparkle in the eye (laughs) of, of my mother and father. And so we didn't start a movement. This is our generation's imprint on a movement that is much older and longer than us. And social media is a new invention, relatively speaking, in terms of time that helps people do particular things, but doesn't facilitate other things. Social media is a tool to generate engagement and conversations online. Hashtags, quite literally, are ways to follow a conversation on social media. It's a way, if you want to know about dogs, if you put in hashtag dog, then you can find everything anybody's ever said about dogs, right? And and hashtags are just that. They're an appendix, but movements, right? Movements are what happen when people who are deeply dissatisfied with their current conditions come together to do something about it. And hashtags are used in the service of that, but they're not interchangeable. They're not the same thing. Um, And if we mistake hashtags for movements, what we do is we two-dimensionalize something that has many more dimensions. We miss the core of what movements are about, which are relationships and dreams and vision and courage and determination. And we also miss the work that's necessary to actually create change. A hashtag cannot change the the decision that was just made in my community to to close several schools in Black and brown communities. A hashtag cannot make sure that somebody doesn't have to make a decision between going to the hospital and paying their rent. Um, Hashtags don't do that, right? People activated and organized with a strategy for change can do that. One of the things that we've witnessed as a trend, but really, again, has this deep historical root and trajectory, is that often activists, as you say, become celebrities or are treated and viewed as celebrities. What's the damage when we begin to elevate people to this celebrity status with all of the trappings and expectations that we have in our obsession with celebrities? What's the damage to the kinds of movements and conversations that you're working on? What's the damage there? You know, I think the damage can be summed up as it encourages people to be passive observers rather than active participants. I can't tell you how many times people have said to me, I love your movement. Keep doing what you're doing. (laughs) Good luck to you people. (laughs) Right? And it's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is not going to work if this is just my movement that you are observing from afar, but you're not seeing as something that is your own. The other consequence, though, is that, you know, celebrities are people that we analyze and scrutinize and we place on pedestals and then we knock them off when they don't meet our standards and expectations. And in the book, I talk about this too, that, you know, one of the things that happens when you celebritize activists 
is that you also put all of your expectations on them without having any kind of relationship to them. We are all up in arms right now about Kanye West and the way that he is stalking Kim Kardashian. But none of us have a relationship with Kanye and none of us have a relationship with Kim, but we do have a relationship with stalking and domestic violence in our communities. And like, what if we were actually more focused on that? So that's one piece. But two, you know, the people who are doing this work, we're not celebrities. We are people who most of us have been doing this work for a long time, not in spotlights. And we have expectations that are placed on us without relationships to make those expectations real or consented to. Accountability implies relationship. And I think that there are ways in which that observer dynamic, right, um, really facilitates that. It's like, well, I don't know you, but if I was you, this is what I would be doing. And, and my counter to that would be, that's fine. Everybody's you know entitled to their opinion. But I always say, look, if you don't like the way a thing is being done, go out and do it better. We need many more hands to do this work. And not everybody's going to do the same thing. Not everybody's going to do what you like. Not everybody's going to do it the way you want to do it. But there's plenty of room for lots of people to be doing lots of things. And as long as you're kind of armchair quarterbacking, right, then you're directing from the sidelines, but you're not actually getting in the fight. And that has also long-term consequences for us. And then finally, I think one of the dynamics that it perpetuates is that people want to be activists so that they can be celebrities. And I'm here to tell you from more than 20 years of doing this work, um, you're in one minute and you're gone the next, honey. <laughs> like, literally, just think about it Project Runway style. Like one minute you're in, the next minute you're out. The drive to be a part of social change should be deeply personal to you. It necessitates that you have a reason that you keep going every day. There's a perception that activism is easy, that organizing is easy, that social change is easy, and that it's all cameras and glory and glitz. And I can tell you, it's actually none of that for most people who do this work. Throughout history, right, we have cherry-picked particular people to highlight because it helps to tell a story that has benefits for some folks. We tell stories about Rosa Parks being like a very meek and passive person who just one day spontaneously decided she wasn't moving to the back of the bus and she becomes like this national hero for us, right? But that's not what she was at all. She was an organizer. She was involved in registering people to vote. You know, her case, she was approached by the NAACP to be the face of a legal case that was contesting, right? Segregation in the South. And that Montgomery bus boycott really helped to catapult, right, that era of civil rights activism and legislation, right? But she was not somebody who just woke up one day and thought, I think I'm going to do something. She was somebody who had been involved and nobody knew her nationally until she took that very bold and brave action. And she didn't take that bold and brave action to be known nationally. She took that bold and brave action to move a strategy. Same thing with people like Martin Luther King or Malcolm X. Like we tell these flat stories about very complex people. And if we keep doing that, right, then we are observing history as a, a fairy tale that people drop from the sky already equipped with all of the things that they need to move and lead millions. And that's not the way that change happens. Um, and the point here is 
there are some deep divisions in our society that have lasted for generations, changed form, but ultimately have endured. And we need to do something about that or our survival and our livelihood is at stake. And that is really what we should be putting on a platform, right? These issues that continue to persist, we need to be platformizing the innovations and the creativity needed to finally resolve these issues once and for all. You talked about our survivability, and I often worry for activists who have been doing this work, but suddenly get a spotlight or get elevated and people know their name. I worry about the toll that it takes on their mental health and their well-being, because as you said, these are people who are doing something they believe in. They don't set out many people to to be on this platform. And then suddenly it's everyone's coming at you. Everyone is expecting you to be the voice on all things without thinking about your public expectation of me may not be the private priority that I have for me, but suddenly you have to bear that weight. Is there a message that you give to people to prioritize and, as we say in my space, protect your peace as you are going about this work of change, of activism, and movement building in whatever capacity? There is a toll. And I'm glad that you raised that because I I think that it's often not nuanced enough. And it's not as easy as like taking breaks or taking bubble baths or things like that. I mean, it is a daily and ongoing onslaught, especially in this age of misinformation and disinformation every single day, right? Those of us who are in this work are being maligned and attacked and threatened on multiple levels. And then that on top of that, right, there are all the demands of what this work entails and the expectations and the polls. And those aren't all bad things, but they are hard to manage all of them all at once. And the biggest lesson that I've learned over the last decade in particular has been to have a soft heart and a tough skin. You know, for a lot of people, the weights of doing this work can harden you and make you bitter and make you cynical. And I fight against that every single day because I have to, because I deeply believe in our potential and our possibility to transform. And if I didn't deeply believe in that, like this is not the line of work that I should be doing. And at the same time, I've learned that I have to have strong boundaries and I have to have a tough skin. I can't take in everything that people have to say about me, good, bad, or ugly, right? It knocks me off of my path of where I'm trying to go. And every one of us, I believe, um, spiritually, right, has our own destiny to fulfill. And I have mine to fulfill. And my path is my path, right? And so I got to keep grinding on my path. And the way that I do that is by not taking in all of those inputs as much as I can. And then the other way that I do that, honestly, is by being able to say no, you know, and I've been doing it a lot more, especially in the last few years since the pandemic. And it feels it feels good. It's like, no, I'm not going to be in meetings from 5 a.m. because everybody's on the East Coast. Um, no, I'm not going to do a thousand panels because that's not actually my work. Like My work is not to talk on panels. My work is to activate and engage people. And some of that does not involve you know, waxing poetic about whatever issue. 
you know, no, I'm not going to be your diversity speaker because that's not what I do. I am not a DEI consultant, right? (laughs) I am somebody who is charged with helping people see and find and wield their own power. And I think I've heard this from a lot of people and people who I love that I do this work with and, you know, people coming up after me, they are having a hard time kind of balancing all of the demands. And so again, that's why I would just circle back to that point that I made earlier that we need many more hands doing this work. If I'm getting all of those requests, right, and all the people that I work with are getting all of those requests, then we don't have enough people trying to lift this beast that we're trying to lift. So I think, you know, just paying attention to, yes, the mental health and the mental wellness of of people, right? There are people behind these things that we exalt and admire, but also just remembering, right, that like, you don't have to be accessible to everybody all the time to get things done. Alicia Garza is principal of Black Futures Lab and author of The Purpose of Power, How We Come Together When We Fall Apart. Alicia, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. After the break, Stop Solitary Connecticut's lead organizer, Barbara Fair, on fighting for prison reform in the state. This is Disrupted. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Last summer, Connecticut's only high-security prison, Northern Correctional Institute in Summers, permanently closed its doors. It was common for inmates at Northern to be confined to their cells for upwards of 22 hours a day. Our next guest was a critical voice in the closure of Northern, and she now sets her sights on ending solitary confinement statewide. Barbara Fair is a licensed clinical social worker, activist, and lead organizer for Stop Solitary Connecticut. Barbara, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. You have long been involved in various issues of reform, not just across Connecticut, but really across the country. And one of the latest efforts that you're part of is Stop Solitary CT that's fighting to end solitary confinement through policy. Talk to our listeners about how the organization started and how you got involved in the movement. Like you said, I've been working on this uh, solitary confinement decades ago with other states around the country. And I I worked on prison conditions in Connecticut for a long time, but I never really knew about the Supermax until my son at the age of 17 ended up there. And he had just turned 17. And just to make a long story short, that place broke him spiritually, uh, emotionally, in every way possible. And so that's when I knew I had to find out more about this Northern, the Supermax, and I knew it had to be shut down. And so I started working with this group. It was a few Yale students and a pastor, Allie Perry. And they were talking about, you know, how they could bring attention to the fact that we have a Supermax in Connecticut. And so I started working with them. My son actually He was in a better place at the time. And so he was actually able to go and testify before committees, before legislators and publicly talk about, you know, what this place did to him. In 2017, we were able to get a bill passed. The bill, you know, was watered down so badly that I knew I was in here for the long haul. 
all we ended up getting after all of our work was getting a bill said that you can't go into the supermax until you're at least 18. You can't torture them at, at 17, but you can do it at 18. So I knew I had a long road ahead to get Northern shut down. Another co- coalition formed, some of the same members, but then we added people who've been formerly incarcerated themselves and family members to that group. And we called ourselves Stop Solitary Connecticut. And then with that, this is the work we've been doing, just just really intensifying our work, reaching out, getting a lot more supporters on our page and even connect with Department of Corrections, whoever, to, to, um, to first get Northern shut down and to make sure that that behavior doesn't transport to uh, other prisons. And so that's the work we've been doing. And we also said, you know, shutting down Northern was the beginning but we had to make sure that we ended solitary confinement in Connecticut altogether. So we're on that path right now. Our The policy that we had to protect act doesn't, doesn't end solitary, but it definitely significantly restricts its use. So before we talk about that particular legislation and the policy goals surrounding the work you've been doing, I want to take a step back. Because you talked about the experience of your son, learning about his experience and wanting to advocate not just for your son, but for other people's sons who were experiencing that. And you've long talked about the impact on family. And one statistic I want to point out, because I think it's key here, especially in Connecticut, there was a 2019 report from the ACLU, and it found that Connecticut disproportionately assigns more Black men to solitary confinement than any other state. Talk to our listeners about what solitary confinement actually is here in Connecticut, because some people may hear the term and think, oh, you're just separated from people, so you're not a risk. But your work is really diving into how it plays out. What is solitary confinement in Connecticut? We try to follow Mandela rules, and those are the international United, you know, United Nations rules. And they state solitary confinement is being held alone or with someone else where there's not meaningful social contact. And it's for 22 hours or more. It also says that it's something according to Mandela rules. It is also something that is never used for discipline. It's for the shortest period of time possible. It has to be an exceptional circumstance, and they mandate that it shouldn't be over 15 days because after 15 days, many people that are held in solitary may possibly never recover from you know what the trauma that was caused to them. The people don't want to call it torture, but according to United Nations, it is torture. And so to do that to someone and then send them back to their communities, that's what that's what we're after. And so many of our facilities hold people for 22 hours a day on a regular basis, not even as discipline. And here the United Nations international law is saying you shouldn't hold them for like that, except for exceptional circumstances and not more than 15 days. So imagine people who've been in there for weeks, months, years, and many of them, like my son, will be coming back home to their families and and they're broken. You've talked about the international views and ethics around this and the, the ways in which the international community has said this is not acceptable for longer term use. And yet in Connecticut, it sounds like it's a more common practice. The act that you mentioned, the legislation you mentioned is the PROTECT Act, and that stands for Promoting Responsible Oversight, Treatment, and Effective Correctional Transparency. What are the key components 
of that legislation here in Connecticut? Number one, we want to stop prolonged isolation. That's that's number one. And then we want to make sure that there's independent oversight because what in Connecticut, Connecticut is one of the few states that has no independent oversight over their Department of Corrections. They also, Connecticut is the only state that doesn't have oversight over their health care. They provide and oversee their own health care. So oversight is like in so many groups that I'm working with, oversight is like the most important thing that uh, component of this bill. And that's the main thing that we seem to get a lot of pushback from. So another thing we want to do is promote effective alternatives, because we know isolating people is not an alternative. It's not a healthy alternative. We want to end abusive restraints and dehumanizing strip searches. Another thing Mandela Rule says, strip searches are because of the nature of being so degrading and humiliating that they should only be used in extenuating circumstances. Strip searches are done on a regular basis within Connecticut prisons. I've talked to men who cried during the strip search because it was so degrading and so humiliating, but they felt like they had, they couldn't do anything because they were told by the guards, if you just move, we'll have to use force on you. So they just feel like it, it's like a sexual assault to some of them. So we decided, okay, we need to um, add that in our bill this year. It also talks about abusive restraints like putting people that's already in, locked in a cage and then you put shackles and, and handcuffs and, and shackle them around their, their belly. And then they would be in these awkward positions where they couldn't even sit up straight. They said they couldn't even, you know, if they went to the bathroom, they, they weren't able to clean themselves. So we want to end that. We also want to protect social bonds because I, like we said, many of those people are coming back home or those people are coming back home. So while they're in there, one of the the best things that we can do is keep them connected to their families and communities. And so we want to protect that by having providing uh, writing material for people who just don't have the money for it and then to make sure that they're able to make calls. And then the last one is uh, we want to promote uh, officer wellness because there's many people, and I'm, I'm quite sure the majority of people go in there for the right reasons. They want to make a difference. They want to help. They want to change the culture. And what we've found from some of the people who have gone inside of the Department of Corrections is that the culture is so bad, so toxic that it ends up hurting them. And so we want to make sure that officers are well, because if they're well, they're more likely to treat the incarcerated people in a, in a better manner. One of the things that you just said that I think may surprise a lot of people is that you see this as a means of also promoting officer wellness and that it's not just about the incarcerated individual, which is important, but it's also about the culture within these prisons, how it affects the wellness, the safety and the overall standing of correctional officers who also then take that trauma or exposure home to their communities. How do you think that this could overall reform the culture that exists within Connecticut prisons? I think because the culture of prisons is so toxic and people have done it for decades without even giving it a thought how they're treating people. And if we can just get them to just think of people as human beings, follow Mandela rules to the to full extent, not just pick up the pieces you want, because the number one rule is treat people with human dignity at all times, respect their, their human dignity. 
So in Connecticut, we pick and choose which rules that we want to follow. And we say in the executive order, and I don't know if I'm going off a little bit from the executive order that the governor produced, he actually doesn't talk about ending these restraints, these abusive restraints. He talks about reducing them. And he talks about reducing solitary confinement, where Mandela law says they should not be happening after 15 days and only as an exceptional and never for discipline. And in Connecticut, it's it's discipline. And then for other people, it's just regular people like Cheshire. That's just regular 22 hours a day in their cells. Let's talk about that executive order then. In 2021, you were named as one of the most influential African-Americans in the state of Connecticut. Congratulations. And what's wonderful about that is that you use that influence to help make things better for other people. In 2021, the PROTECT Act was passed by both the House and the Senate in the state of Connecticut, and then the governor vetoed the bill and issued instead this executive order. And you and and Stop Solitary Connecticut have said that that executive order is insufficient. You mentioned briefly why it's insufficient. Do you have hope that this year may be different for that bill or getting to the heart of the humanity that you mentioned that you want to see in all aspects of the legislation? I'm very hopeful because I used a different strategy than than last year. I pretty much left everything up to our legislative champions to push this bill and talk to all the right people. This this session, and because it's shorter, I didn't want to leave that up to our champions alone. And so I actually had a meeting with the governor's legal counsel, and uh, she brought another legal person with her and a policy person and just try to you know, explain to her why I appreciate the executive order, but it just didn't do the things that we really wanted to do. First of all, a executive order is not law. So at his whim, he could just say, eh, I don't want to go this route anymore. Or a new governor can come and say that. So we need to make sure that this is law. So I met with them and I meet, I meet with Department of Corrections every week, their top administrators. In our last meeting, the commissioner was actually in there and I, I invited him for me, he and I to have a one-on-one. And many times, like people in our group might say, do you think it's worth talking to DOC? It is to me because I can't believe that everybody who sits at that table, uh, none of them have a heart. And so I'm really trying to appeal to their heart that, you know, if you pay attention to what I'm asking, I'm just asking you to treat people as human beings. I mean, would you want your children to be treated in this manner? So it's really about appealing to the human the humanity of people that are around this. And so the only other person that I'd really like to sit down one on one with, which I haven't been able to do yet, is the governor because he needs to be able to connect with the humanity of people. And I think that that's a little difficult, you know, from what we're seeing, that's been a difficult task because we've never been able to get him to sit down with us and talk about this. We've heard a lot about this pandemic, the ways in which COVID has brought to the public attention, a lot of issues that we can no longer ignore. And certainly prison conditions are front and center there, but some way, you have found hope through this because you've been able to connect with people who previously didn't think that they had a voice in this fight. 
What's the message that you would give to other activists or families who are feeling overwhelmed by this to say you can claim and assert your power as well? I do that as much as I can. Uh, I receive letters from people in prison, mostly men. But uh, one of the things I tell them is that, you know, we need your family members to show up when we're out here protesting because it's really about your life and their lives because you're eventually going to come back home to them. You don't want, they don't want you to come back home broken in spirit and, and emotionally. They want you to come back whole. So they have a stake also in standing up with us and demanding that our people get treated better. And in Connecticut, because it's such a segregated state, that means a lot of black and brown people are going to have to show up because even though we are only 12% of the population in Connecticut, as far as prisons, we are almost 50% of the people in prison. When you put uh, African-American Latinos, we're over 70% of the people in prison. And it's the same thing in the juvenile detention center. You see this same thing. And that's why I'm trying to raise the voices of young people so that parents realize we have kids as young as 14 years old in Manson Youth. The Department of Justice have already come down on the, the conditions there, forcing Connecticut to, to make some changes. So all of those children at a very young age are facing isolation, which Mandela Rule already says, the younger they are, the less likely they are to recover from it. Barbara Fair is a licensed clinical social worker, an activist, and lead organizer for Stop Solitary Connecticut. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Disrupted is produced by James Scoble-Wolf, Shekinah Collier, and Katie Tularski. Our interns are Michaela Savitt and Sarah Gasparato. Now, before we go, I want to remind you that you can find all 74 episodes of Disrupted on your favorite podcast app. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening. Disrupted.